Welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw. And before we jump in with the actual recording of my interview, I do want to just say this is a long one, guys. This is probably almost an hour and a half, but it's really just great stuff. And so rather than chop it up or edit some stuff out, I'm going to go ahead and, and give you all of it. Um, but I do think you'll be uh, really happy to have it and find it worthwhile. All right, here we go. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am absolutely thrilled to have an amazing guest with me today. I have Dr. Bobby Jean Schweitzer, who is an associate uh, chair, is the associate chair, I'm sorry, of perioperative clinical practice and a professor of anesthesiology at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. She's also the author of what is pretty much the definitive textbook about preoperative assessment and management. It's actually called Preoperative Assessment and Management. It's a textbook used incredibly widely around the world for people who are interested in doing really evidence-based, not only preoperative assessment, but also management of what they find in those preoperative assessments. Uh, and she's just a, really a luminary in this area, and I'm really thrilled and honored to have her on the show to talk about preoperative assessment and management, especially for people coming in for ambulatory surgery. Dr. Schweitzer, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, and thank you for that really kind introduction. I'm thrilled to be here. So you recently gave just an incredibly well-received Grand Rounds here at Johns Hopkins on this topic, and that's, of course, what led me to ask you if you'd be willing to do a podcast. So we're going to go through a lot of that material, which was great, but I want to start by asking you to just tell us a little bit about you and how you got interested in the area of preoperative assessment and management. Well, first, I have to tell you, I feel incredibly lucky that I found this area. So I actually trained in internal medicine before I trained in anesthesiology. And I practiced internal medicine for about four or so years before I decided to pursue critical care. And during that, um, looking at critical care programs, I discovered anesthesiology. And uh, I'd always been, you know, sort of I love the intellectual aspect of medicine, but I always felt like I was missing something by not having something that was a more active profession. So I started training in anesthesiology, and then I did some time in the preoperative clinic, which this was many, many years ago. I'm not going to even tell you how long ago, because I'll tell you my age then. <laughs> but let's just say it was really at its infancy pre-op evaluation. And basically at that point, there was just a handful of preoperative clinics. And actually, I think a lot of them had been driven by ambulatory anesthesiology because, you know, in the, originally patients got admitted to the hospital before they had their surgeries, sometimes for several days while we, you know, evaluated them and prepped them for surgery. So anesthesiologists always had an opportunity to see those patients in-house. And as more and more surgeries got, you know, pushed into the ambulatory setting, there were more and more patients who were showing up without, you know, good information. So the surgeons would, you know, send patients to a place they call the preoperative clinic. That was often staffed by just some RNs. The surgeons would send them some, at that time, probably paper written orders to, you know, get an ECG, a CBC, all these tests. Um, they would have their blood drawn. The nurses would gather the information. If there were abnormalities, they would reach back out to the surgeon or maybe to an anesthesiologist who was busy in the operating room, but quote unquote, had to cover the pre-op clinic. It was considered sort of a punishment to have to, you know, cover the pre-op clinic as an anesthesiologist. Mm -hmm. Most people did not go into anesthesia to do clinical medicine, you know, clinic-based medicine. And so I, you know, as I was doing this, I was like, wow, there's a lot more to this sort of pre-op stuff than I realized when I was an internist. And I realized actually what poor pre-ops I had done. You know, I'd probably unfortunately written some of those, you know, cleared for surgery, avoid hypoxia and, and hypotension, 
But I, I decided that rather than pursuing critical care medicine, that I wanted to do preoperative medicine. Um, and I wanted to, you know, try to develop, you know, better programs and evidence-based of, you know, testing and evaluation, and then not just evaluating, not just finding out the patient's anemic and then they still go on to surgery or not, you know, having to refer them to a cardiologist or something, but to actually, you know, practice this process of optimizing patients preoperatively. And so I went to my chairman, that was at my first job as a, as a new attending, and I told him I wanted to do this, what I wanted to do. And he said, uh, what's wrong with you? <laughs> I was like, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, you know, usually like people only go there when they're sick or they've broken a leg and they can practice anesthesiology. Oh, man. So I didn't get a lot of encouragement. Um, and then likewise, when I decided to write this book, you know, I looked around. I didn't there weren't really textbooks. There was one book that was written by a couple of internists. Um, and it just really, you know, was very internal medicine based. And, and, and the practice of preoperative medicine, I think, is 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 grounded in internal medicine principles. But, you know, as an internist, you prescribe an oral antibiotic or you prescribe an oral blood pressure medicine and you hope the patient goes and fills it and you hope they start taking it sometime in the next week or two <laughs> and you see them back in six months. Right. It's like just everything is done in a very different manner. So, you know, I thought that it really required the, the kind of knowledge of somebody who's in the operating room, who's an anesthesiologist, who knows this time crunch, but also as a, you know, good foundation in internal medicine. Um, so I, you know, dived in and for a few years, I felt like I was maybe the only academic anesthesiologist who was interested in preoperative medicine. But over time, it's been an incredibly rewarding profession. I, you know, I, I, I've seen it grown by leaps and bounds. There's a lot of places that have, you know, ro very robust preoperative programs. I think we've added a lot to the, you know, literature, the, the knowledge we have about how to, you know, manage some patients and prepare them better for surgery and anesthesia. Yeah, amazing. And you certainly have. Um, tell me just briefly about your textbook. What, what a, you know, how do you structure it? What does it, what does it give people who are interested in trying to do this better? Thank you for asking. So it is in its third edition, and I think it's gotten better with time, though it's taken a few more years off of my life each time I've done one of these. I bet. But, you know, <laughs> the, the latest edition is has over 100 different contributors. Um, I decided to do a completely different format. It is organized in large chapters, for example, cardiac. So it's, you know, kind of it'd be familiar to anesthesiologists by organ systems. So cardiac, pulmonary, hematology, you know, renal, that sort of thing. But within those sections, there may be, you know, I think the cardiac one is the biggest one. I don't remember now, but maybe 30 different subtopics that are their own individual kind of sub chapter. Um, so it's it's very user friendly. And the I tried to pick people who were involved in, you know, preoperative medicine and in the operating room as well. But uh, I do include um, some chapters by internists, hospitalists, uh, um, people with a focus on administration, on writing a clinic, on billing and that sort of thing. Uh, but it's if you need it in the moment, it's almost like a Mass General handbook, if anyone's familiar with the Mass General yeah. series where you can carry it in your pocket, though nobody does that nowadays, but you know, you, you can you can look at a, a you know a particular subject, say aortic stenosis or undiagnosed murmur. And within probably 10 minutes as you step out of the room from the patient, you can quickly look up, 
and say, oh, you know, what are the kind of like typical symptoms and, and, and physical findings that I would find in this setting? What is the typical sort of, you know, differential diagnosis? What is the typical sort of associated conditions? And especially in, with a focus always on how this will impact anesthesia and surgery. Um, and then it gets, you know, it, it talks about the testing that you, one should do. And then it also talks about a, a management piece. So rather than just, you know, like, oh, I, you know, I get the echo or I get the stress test and I send them off to cardiology, it, it talks about, you know, well, if it shows this and this and this, then, you know, you don't necessarily have to do that, right? Um, or like how to really focus on, you know, not just a risk assessment, which is always kind of bugs me when people spend too much time talking about risk assessment and a patient's high risk. And because unless we know specifically what that risk is, and unless we specifically can do something about it, does it really help us to know the patient is low, intermediate, or high risk? So I always try to tell people, you know, try to think about like, what is it? Is there anything I can do for this patient that could either lower their risk or I need to communicate to somebody, need to, you know, dialogue to the surgeon about a different cooperation or a stage procedure or the anesthesiologist about planning on, you know, invasive monitoring or something like that. And it particularly is pertinent, I think, when you talk about ambulatory surgery, and I think we're going to get to that a bit later, but, you know, in an ambulatory freestanding ambulatory surgery clinic or, you know, office-based setting, or even in a NORA setting, sometimes in your own, you know, large hospital complex, you can have very different resources available to you, right? So, I think having patients that you have information on and having patients optimized as best as possible and helping choose the best venue to take care of that patient can make a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds great. I absolutely want that in my white coat pocket and am going to be, be getting myself a copy. So I'm, I'm glad. And I imagine there must be um, a PDF version you get if you order it that that folks could um, could have on their phone if that's easier for them. So that that sounds absolutely great. Let me ask you, um, it, we once maybe, maybe uh, ambulatory surgery used to kind of be equated with low risk patients, right? I mean, e- low risk patients, low risk surgeries, that was an ambulatory surgery. Not so true anymore, right? Absolutely. You know, I think the, the guys who, you know, kind of really started this, and I say guys, I think they were all men, you know, specifically, um, you know, they were, they want this to be a safe process, right? And it was, you know, kind of putting themselves out there a bit. So I think they really chose, you know, relatively lower risk surgeries um, and, you know, relatively, uh, you know, healthy patients. In fact, it was always traditionally ASA one or two patients. Nobody took anything higher than that. Um, but with, you know, sort of the, I think, proven benefits of ambulatory surgery, be that lower cost, be that patient convenience, um, be that, you know, some better outcomes sometimes, frankly. Um, I think there's been, you know, that creep to do more and more ambulatory procedures and be both more extensive procedures as well as on higher risk or more complicated patients. Yeah. And do you think that um, COVID is accelerating that? Uh, You know, I think we are seeing a little bit of a push to ramp up outpatient uh, ambulatory surgery at, I think, given that the likelihood that we're going to be ramping down, um, you know, uh, inpatient surgery again. It definitely seems that way. I can't actually quote any real hard and fast numbers on that. And definitely at the beginning last March and, you know, early spring, I think a lot of ambulatory centers were shut down as well. 
But I think then they quickly realized that, you know, there were some patients that, you know, needed to have surgery, right? And by putting off these procedures, patients were actually uh, going to do worse. They were going to end up with, you know, um, worse, you know, higher risk than need of, you know, interventions. So ambulatory surgery centers started opening up again. And then I think that there was this pressure, whether it was this pressure that they felt or the surgeons were pushing them or patients wanting to have things done to try to do more and more um, you know, uh, interventions and procedures that they perhaps wouldn't have done before. And a lot of surgery centers tell me they're just busy as ever. Um, I'm pretty heavily involved with SAMBA, the Society for Ambulatory Anesthesia. And, uh, you know, m- most of those places now have not shut back at all. And I know here in Chicago, you know, we are are, are restricted for, to the number of, of cases that we can do of a certain level, um, particularly those that are, you know, require inpatient. We have to keep a certain number of beds open. And so we have cut back on our non-ambulatory surgeries, but we have not cut back on our ambulatory surgeries at all. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So let's go through some of the, obviously we're not going to cover your whole textbook, but let's go through some of the kind of highlights or, or I should say maybe things that they are going to come up for people most often that I think will be good. And they certainly can go to your book if they want to get more details. So yeah, let's so start with can- cardiac. Um, sure. You mentioned that, uh, you know, this is a big section in the book. And obviously this is something all of us think about quite a lot. Um, what do we want to think about when we're screening or assessing people coming for ambulatory surgery and from a cardiac setting? So I say the first thing that, you know, I think it really is the foundation of preparing a patient for anesthesiology and surgery care is to get a information about their major medical problems. It's just a good basic history. You know, we've, I, we've transitioned to a doing a lot of telehealth visits, um, some of those are phone screens, some of those are video supported. Um, but you know, you don't need a patient in front of you to just ask them information about their history or to be able to go through their chart. And if you're lucky enough to, you know, have electronic records, especially where you have shared access to, you know, other institutions' records, um, it just starts with getting some good information about those patients' medical problems. And you always hit the major organ systems, right? And we know that cardiac is right there, maybe responsible for for the most complications. Um, pulmonary is the only thing that ever gives us run for its money. And, you know, it's one, two with, with those two. But I think that, you know, you need to know if the patient has, you know, coronary artery disease, right? You need to know if they have stents. You need to know the dates of the timing of those stents. Because there are, you know, I think the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association um, has, has done a really remarkable job in developing a lot of guidelines for us. Um, the, the one that's specific for preoperative evaluation was last published in 2014. It's not perfect, but I think it's, it's quite an excellent article, uh, a guideline. It goes through not just ischemic heart disease, which is what usually people always focus right in on is, oh, does patient have coronary disease? Frankly, I have to tell you, I don't think coronary heart disease is the worst cardiac condition that we can take care of. I think it's heart failure. I think yeah. it's you know arrhythmias. I think it's patients who have um, valvular abnormalities. They typically are at much higher risk than those who have coronary artery disease. And for the first time, I believe that document, that ACCHA guideline that was published in 2014, does a good job in expanding beyond the ischemic heart disease. They do it. They have an entire section on those things I just mentioned, and they even emphasize that themselves. They point out that you know a patient with heart failure having now major surgeries, not ambulatory typically, but a major surgery 
with a history of heart failure has about a 10% risk of death or, or a significant complication. Mm. Um, and patients with atrial fib have about a 6, 6.5% risk. And those with coronary artery disease only have a 2.9% risk. So wow. I think that just puts it in a real perspective there for you that, you know, don't get too in the weeds with the CAD. Um, but, you know, obviously somebody who has recent stents, and again, I think the ACCHA guidelines have done an excellent job. I think the most recent one for anti dual antiplatelet therapy guidelines is from 2017, but it gives us a very good, you know, uh, approach to doing those patients. And I don't think guidelines are the end all and be all, you know, I don't, I don't think they're, you know, rest, you know, just cookbook medicine, but they're like, for many people who aren't a skilled chef, you start with a recipe, right? You start with the basics. And then as you get good at doing something, you may start to be able to make your own independent decisions. But particularly, you know, I think in, as anesthesiologists, you know, we often rely on a lot of other people to help us prepare our patients. And I think it's somewhat unfair to sit there on the day of surgery, um, you know, you're in an ambulatory surgery center and have a patient show up to you you know, be taken care of. And now you just willy nilly, oh, does this cancel this case? Or I'm not happy with this, or I'm not comfortable with this. You know, you need to either have a process in place, you need to, you need to be active in, in corporate, you know, cooperating with your, your, your surgeons and your, your, your providers and primary care doctors to have a process in place to help you get information, have standards. You know, if you don't want to do people who have had recent stents, then just have that be one of your requirements in your ambulatory surgery centers. And we do know that patients who had recent stents are high risk, for example, maybe not the best place to do them in an ambulatory surgery center. Um, so, you know, I, I, we try to follow, again, the book, you know, was published. Gosh, that's a good question. I don't remember now. I think it's been the most recent dish is about three years old now. So like any book, you know, it, it gets outdated after a while. But I sure. do believe that, you know, it, uh, we definitely covered the 2014 ACCHI guidelines. I'm trying to think about the 2017 dual antiplatelet therapy guidelines. But, you know, I think that those are easy to find anyway on the web. The nice thing, too, about the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, is they make their guidelines open source. You do not have to be a member of their society to access those, which is kudos to them. Now, they have a lot of money. They make a lot of money stenting patients and <laughs> doing stress tests, so they can afford it, I guess. Um, but um, I, I do think that, you know, if, if you're going to do anything, you probably should, you know, have some uh, mechanism to make sure you you evaluate patients with heart failure, you evaluate patients with valvular disease, you know if people have murmurs, you know if they have C ICDs or pacemakers, and you know about ischemic heart disease. Um, you know, there's a few more esoteric, you know, congenital heart disease patients, probably not the best people to be doing an ambulatory surgery center to begin with. So, you know, start with the low hanging fruit, start with those big categories of patients. Um, and uh, I think a lot of them can be safely done, particularly when there's low risk surgeries. So I think you always look at the patient and the surgery together. Yeah, I think that's great and really key. So, so tell me a little more about that. Do How uh, do we categorize surgeries or maybe give me an example of some low risk, maybe intermediate risk and, and high risk surgeries for people to just keep in mind as examples. Well, thank you for asking that. In fact, that's one of my favorite topics. And in fact, it was such a favorite topic of mine that I decided to do a research project on this because I think that in the past, traditionally, people have sort of categorized surgeries based on these arbitrary 
uh, categorizations of like intra-abdominal is high risk, intra-thoracic is high risk, um, you know, and um, if there's, you know, short cases, if there's less than 500 cc of blood loss, it's low risk. If, you know, but there wasn't a good data, I don't believe, to back up most of those um, those recommendations or those categorizations. And most of it also only looked at cardiac risk. So, you know, a patient who's high risk for a bleeding complication or high risk for a pulmonary complication is not always the same as a patient who's high risk for a cardiac complication. So yeah. I think it's important that you define what risk you're concerned about. So um, a few years ago, I, you know, sort of did this deep dive in the literature to try to say, you know, what do we know about this? Where's the science behind this? And I thought there wasn't good science. So I, I um, collaborated and with a group of surgeons um, that uh, were also heavily involved with the American College of Surgeons uh, NISQIP uh, database. And I don't know if your you know, listeners are familiar with that, but, you know, you can go on the web and you can access a calculator where you plug in the surgery and you plug in, um, I think it's 21 different characteristics about the patient. And the nice thing about it is you do not need to have any uh, specific lab tests. You don't have to know what the patient's creatinine is, for example, or their A1C. Most of it's just historical information that you're going to know. Do they have a history of heart failure? Do they have COPD? Do they have diabetes? Things like that, their age. And then you, you know, hit this little button that says calculate. And then you get this very nice graph that shows you a variety of predicted risks that this patient with this profile undergoing this surgery is likely to incur based on literally millions of patients that they have um, put into this database, real patients, real surgeries, um, and the outcomes of those. It's one of the most robust, robust databases I know of for that. It's not billing data, which is so much better um, when you have actually clinical data. And it also is the only risk predictor that I know of that truly looks at specific CPT codes. So if you do know the CPT code of the surgery, but you can also just, if you don't know that, you can, you can plug in like hysterectomy or hysterectomy with a BSO or, you know, hysterectomy with BSO and lymph node dissection. You can plug in mastectomy, mastectomy with a reconstruction and the type of reconstruction. So you can get very specific about the type of surgery. Um, and the, um, it was originally mainly inpatients and major surgeries, but over time, they've gotten more and more ambulatory uh, data in there for ambulatory surgery patients, for lower risk patients. I think the only surgeries they do not have is cataract or ophthalmologic surgeries. Otherwise, they have, I think, pretty much the whole spectrum. It's also the only calculator that I know of that is not organ specific. So it's not just the MICA score. It's not just the RCRI that's cardiac. It's not just the ARISCAT that's, you know, pulmonary. Um, it gives you a, I forget, maybe it's 10 different, you know, risks, including things like um, discharge to an, a, um, you know, sniff um, or patient, you know, re, re, uh, readmission or take back to the OR. But it gives you cardiac, pulmonary, surgical side infection risk. Um, so it's it's quite a robust tool. But we use this to 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 do this study that looked at surgical risks, and it was published in Anesthesiology. Um, I mean, so think probably about three four years ago now, and um, it was somewhat surprising. For example, a mastectomy and a lumpectomy are both low risk surgeries. 
but a mastectomy has about twice the risk as lumpectomy. Um, a laparoscopic appendectomy is half the risk of a open appendectomy. And I always thought, why am I wasting my time doing a laparoscopic appendectomy? You know, this incision's two or three centimeters long. But when, after I saw that, I was like, oh, there's something to this. Yeah. Um, you know, a breast reconstruction uh, puts a patient into a high risk category if it's, if it's a, like a tram flap or a muscle flap transfer. So I think, you know, if you look at things like that, that can really inform you in your decision making and planning and discussion with patients about, you know, what you should be doing and how you should approach, you know, um, surgeries. And it resonates a lot with the surgeons because it's from their data and it's graphical. Um, and we use it for patients. In fact, uh, Vanderbilt a couple of years ago published an article where they had used it in, in their preoperative clinic. And they found that patients were quite receptive to it. Ironically, the low-risk patients overestimated their risk beforehand because they asked them beforehand what their risk was and they did this risk calculator with them. And the higher risk patients underestimated their risk. Everybody kind of regressed to the mean. <laughs> um, but it, we use it in our clinic periodically, especially for patients when we're very concerned um, and we need to sort of really frame an, a, a discussion and share decision-making. Yeah, I mean, that I can imagine both for patients and, and clinicians is great, right? To be able to actually say, look, let's plug in your data. Let's look and see for this surgery. Here's what you're looking at. And to be able to share that with the patient and have them understand that, that's a lot better than what we currently do, which I feel like is very little, right? When we're telling patients about risk. Yeah, and I also think, you know, we'd say things like low risk, right? Right. Like what is the low risk? You know, what is the percentage of that? What, and it's interesting because when you use this, this tool, there's a percentage. And I've often had surgeons say to me, what's the percentage of that? You know, and, and for example, in the cardiac uh, guideline, they classify low risk surgeries as those that have less than a 1% mace. Intermediate risk surgeries were always categorized as those with a 1% to 5% mace. And high risk was, you know, greater than 5%. And when you tell a patient, though, that they have a 5% risk of a complication, they're like, oh, I have a 95% risk of doing great. But it's not binary, right? It's not like you do great or you have a major complication. There's often a lot of right. gray in there, right? Right. But we also know that the patients who do have complications, that initial complication, their risk then over the next, you know, three months and for the next year is magnified. And so I think that what is interesting about this also graphical, if you if your listeners look at it, it has a column on the far right that says below average, average and above average. And I find that patients and even surgeons really resonate when you point that out, because, you know, if it's something good, we all want to be above average. Right. <laughs> if, right. It's not, if it's something bad, nobody wants to be above average. Right. That resonates more than it does whether you have a 2%, a 5%, a 10% risk. Yes, I can totally see that. So if you tell someone you actually are at an above average risk for getting pneumonia or for having an MI or getting a UTI, uh, going into, re, you know, having your kidneys mm -hmm. fail after this surgery, that's that's striking and, and more meaningful than saying, you know, you have a 2% risk. Well, I don't know, is that low or is that high, right? Exactly. 
And especially when they have multiple, because that's what often happens with some of these higher risk patients, right? You know, we, we, it's not, somebody's not just at risk for cardiac. You know, when you, by the time you get to 80, you're at risk for multiple things, right? Multiple medical problems, multiple things. So then it's, it's one thing if you have an isolated issue. It's another thing if you have 10 organ systems, 10 different, you know, things that put you at risk because then they become cumulative. Right, right. And, uh, you know, this gives patients a little agency. They may say, especially for things that are not, you know, emergent surgeries, things that are elective surgeries, they may say, you know, I want to rethink this. Um, And they should be able to do that. We, We see that quite a bit that, you know, or at least, you know, I think you're also preparing patients for what to expect. You know, and they, you know, I think if patients are surprised by the results or if patients have been told, you know, everything's fine or you're low risk or this is not discussed and then something happens, I think they're often much less happy about that and their family members as well. Um, Then if you, you know, we all choose risks in everyday life and we choose risks when we undergo medical care, but it should be, we should be able to give you know, you expect your financial advisor to give you some information about risks, right? Right. You expect, you know, some more. I think in, in healthcare, we've gotten to buy quite a bit about, you know, this black box that patients sort of trust us. They come in, but then things don't always go as they have anticipated, even though often for us, it's not terribly surprising. Um, but we just haven't prepared patients well for that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's talk about a few specifics within the cardiac category. So how about for patients who have had an MI? We hear this a lot, you know, a lot of our pre-op forms ask how, you know, have they had an MI? And if so, how long? Why do we care about that? How long do we, I mean, ideally, they'd never have an MI, but if they had an MI, you know, when is it safe to take them for ambulatory surgery? Sure. So, you know, I think that um, this is, again, one of those situations when, you know, we have a very firm timeline that the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association has identified, and their current recommendation says 60 days. Um, I think that has been a moving target. When I was first in this pre-op business, it was two years. I'm not kidding you. After an MI, they said you should not have elective surgery for two years. And then over the years, that got shorter and shorter and shorter. And the, the, the addition before the 2014 was a 2007. It was actually updated a little bit in 2009, but not really on that topic. So in 2007, they were saying 30 days. In fact, they said that if the patient had had an MI and did not have any myocardium, quote unquote, at risk, meaning like perhaps they had a cath and the cath was clean other than that one area, they said you could go to the OR as short as seven days later. Wow. But seven years later, in 2014, they had changed their tune and they were saying 60 days. Um, and that was the first time it had been longer than 30 days for more than 10 years. Um, I think the data was just there that was supporting that. Um, your risk is never going to be zero, right? As you know, we, we said earlier about, you know, if you've got coronary disease, it's about a 2.9% risk if you're having major surgery. And, you know, um, after you've had an MI, if you're lucky enough not to, to have dropped your EF, if you don't have heart failure, then you're just sort of in that cat coronary disease category. If you did have a massive MI and now you've got, you know, heart failure with it, now you're, you know, at even a higher risk there. So, you know, if you look at it, the, the, the lowest that person's risk, if they don't have heart failure, is going to be about 2.9%. But in the, the first um, 30 days, it's almost 20% of a major oh. adverse cardiac event. Uh, by 60 days, it drops to about 8.5%. 
So I think actually 60 days is even a bit of a short time. Yeah. Um, but I think it was such a big jump from either seven or 30 up to like 90 or longer, which is, but I wouldn't be surprised if we don't sort of even, if they don't push it out a little bit more, but for currently they say that very firmly and it's not just for ambulatory surgery. It's actually for any surgery that is not a time sensitive or urgent surgery where the benefits of the surgery outweigh the risk. Now, obviously, you're going to have somebody with a leaking aneurysm. You're going to have somebody with maybe pancreatic cancer. And you have to say, you know, if we wait until, you know, the 60-day period, then we may as well not do anything because the patient's going to not benefit from that indication for the surgery. But if it's, you know, truly elective non-emergency surgery, I think you should uh, wait 60 days. Um, I think the question always comes up about cataract surgery, whether that gets a buy. Yeah. Interestingly, I don't know. If you look at the ACCHA guidelines, they do specifically state that if the patient's having a low-risk procedure and they specifically use, say, for example, cataract surgery, then you should not do a risk assessment on that patient. But this is a little bit different. This is not a risk assessment we're talking about here. This is a patient who's had an MI. So they don't really give that buy or that out for the 60-day period. They just say period 60 days. Um, But some people have kind of extrapolated that other piece to say and say, you know, cataract surgery is so low risk. It's like going to the dentist. Why should I have to, you know, your dentist doesn't ask you if you've had an MI. Though I bet you if your dentist knew you had an MI in the last recent past, they probably wouldn't want to be doing anything. So we pretty much stick to that 60 days in our ambulatory surgery center and even in our main um, operating rooms, um, unless we have a, a really strong reason to, to to deviate from that. Okay, great. How about people with stents? You mentioned stents before. Obviously, there's either a bare metal stent or a, a drug-eluting stent. How long after a stent placement would you take someone for ambulatory surgery? So again, use, utilizing that you know 2017 guideline that they have, they, they say um, that guideline is interesting because it's not just a preoperative guideline. It's a dual antiplatelet therapy guideline for any cardiac uh, condition. Um, They say 30 days after a bare metal stent, one should remain on dual antiplatelet therapy. And then, you know, usually that's, you know, clopidogrel, plavix, and aspirin. And you need seven days off to have normal platelet function. And um, generally, you know, you would then have to wait at least, you know, 37 days before you would be scheduling surgery, right? And they do recommend that um, for patients with any stent of any time, that there's a strong recommendation to continue low-dose aspirin unless the bleeding risk is excessive. So they're only talking about dropping off that second potent um, antiplatelet drug. Um, So with drug-eluting stents, they say that for preoperative purposes, you need to wait six months to complete dual antiplatelet therapy, and then, of course, that one week off. However, I think there's a bit of a caveat to that document. I I don't think it's the the most well-written or clear document. Because in that same document, they say that if a drug-eluting stent is placed for stable coronary artery disease, the patient should remain on dual antiplatelet therapy for six months. However, if that drug-eluting stent was placed for an acute myocardial infarction, the patient should remain on dual antiplatelet therapy for a full 12 months. Mm. 
But then they turn around and say that if it's for surgery, you can stop it after six months. So it's a little bit contradictory there, right? Yeah. Because yeah. if you had that patient who had an MI and that stent was placed, is it okay to stop after six months? I don't know. People debate this in the preoperative world and people do different things. Um, I think a lot of it is, you know, assessing other things as well. You know, not most of medicine is not that black and white. So, you know, you look at that patient and if they've got multiple stents, if they're a diabetic, if they've got a stent within a stent, if they've got a stent and a bifurcation, if they've got a left main, if they've got a proximal LED, if they um, have had any previous stent, in, you know, we used to gnosis at some point, if they've got chronic kidney disease, um, you, I think you would be very remiss not to try to wait longer than six months if that was put mm -hmm. in for an acute coronary syndrome. Or at least I think engage the cardiologist or at least engage a conversation with the patient and the surgeon and everybody of, of the, you know, risks. And again, this is an interesting topic about ambulatory surgery, right? Because we know that if you do acutely thromboesophageal stent, there's about a 50% mortality. One in two patients will die from that. Yeah, and yeah. the way to save myocardium and save lives is to restore blood flow. And that can generally only be done with a cardiologist in a cath lab with the, with the catheter, you know, up in that patient's you know, heart and doing an angioplasty. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, there's recommendations from their literature about talking about door to balloon time of, you know, when a patient presents to the emergency department, they say the patient should be in the cath lab within 90 minutes, that every 15 minutes past that 90 minute window, the mortality doubles. So you have to ask yourself that whether we shouldn't be held to that same requirement in an ambulatory surgery center or any, you know, OR setting is can, so can you get your patient transferred? from wherever they're at, if you think they've had a, you know, instant stenosis or a thrombosis now acutely to a hospital with a cath lab, with a cardiologist and in that cath lab, restoring blood flow. Um, because, you know, stents are amazing and angioplasty can be amazing. That's what saves myocardium. So those patients don't end up with heart failure that we've talked about. Right. Um, so if you are going to do those patients that, you know, kind of borderline, um, I would say that you, you know, you should at least be cognizant of, you know, the, 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 the risk there and the transfer time. And maybe some of those patients are better done in a, in a hospital based setting, but definitely sure. within sure. six months after diluting stent, 30 days after a bare metal stent, nobody should be doing elective surgeries. Yep. Great. All right. And heart failure, you mentioned a few times as being actually uh, a more significant risk factor than even coronary artery disease, which, as you pointed out, is, is usually not how people think about it. How how do we define heart failure? Obviously, there's, you know, you can have a reduced eject. Well, I guess there's two. You can have reduced ejection fraction or preserved ejection fraction and still have heart failure. And then within reduced ejection fraction, you can have, you know, mildly reduced, significantly reduced. So how, how do we think about that? Yes. Um, so, you know, I don't think we know quite as much about the perioperative care of patients with heart failure as we do with coronary disease. In fact, you know, I give, uh, uh, you know, a lot of credit to the cardiologist and the anesthesiologist who over the years have developed best ways to take care of patients with ischemic heart disease. I think that's why we've lowered the risk. We need to have more of that in the heart failure population. Because mm -hmm. frankly, in the past, you know, we frequently wouldn't even consider some of those patients to have surgeries because they would be considered too high risk or we couldn't get them to the surgery. So, you know, 
heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction appears to carry significantly higher risk than heart failure with a preserved ejection fraction. And the okay. lower one's ejection fraction is when it's reduced, the greater that risk. So the big cutoff appears to be sort of at about 30% ejection fraction. Um, and anyone with an ejection fraction of higher than that is probably at minimally increased risk as long as they are well compensated at the time you're taking care of them or have not had a recent exacerbation. Um, the lower that ejection fraction, fraction gets, the, the, the worse the, the risk. And by the time you get down to below 20, the risk is significantly higher. Um, patients at the highest risk are those with decompensated heart failure. Another way to look at it is New York Heart Association classifications of heart failure, you know, one through four. And it's, right. you know, whether you have, you know, sim no symptoms, whether you have symptoms with, you know, major exertion, whether you have symptoms with minor exertion or symptoms at rest. Right. And those with heart failure right. class four at rest are at the highest risk as well. Now, those are based on sort of what we've known just observational and traditionally. Many cardiologists have raised this um, question about whether ejection fraction is the best way to evaluate patients at risk. And uh, um, I think increasingly we're looking at some other things like biomarkers, whether that be a BNP or an NTBNP. Um, there's some good data, I believe, that if you have normal biomarkers, the patient is going to do very well. And that's whether they have heart failure, atrial fib, valvular disease, or ischemic heart disease. Whatever heart disease you have, if you have a normal BNP, it is highly predictive that you will do well. Hmm. Once your BNP or your NT-BNP starts to go up, the higher the risk is. So Cut off for uh, BNP 94, I believe, is a common one you will see. Uh, for NT-BNP 300 is a common one. Many of patients with heart failure have chronically elevated BMP, sometimes in the thousands, literally. So increasingly, cardiologists are using this to judge how well the patient's compensated, how well they're managed, and they try to get them down to the lowest BMP they can get them to. So if you are lucky enough to have you know, a cardiologist who's tracking these numbers, I think that's a very useful number to look at. Um, if you've got a normal one, like I said, that's great, but many of these patients will be elevated anyway. But at least you don't want to bring somebody in to an elective surgery who normally say their you know, BMP is 110, and now it's 800. Right. That may be telling you something. Yeah. Um, so we used to also not know how long after an exacerbation to wait. The rule of thumb was always sort of 30 days. If you had an exacerbation, wait 30 days. But that was kind of arbitrary. We do know that the longer you wait, the you know the better things get. Unfortunately, the longer you wait in a patient with heart failure, the, the worse everything else is sort of getting right into their right. heart also. Um, so there's a magic you know, place there. But so I think that one thing is that they, the cardiologists will often say is let's get them their BMP back to baseline. Let's mm -hmm. get them asymptomatic. Let's get their weight, weight, you know, stable. So if they've gained 10 pounds, diuresis them down. Um, and um, let's try to get the BMP as, at, to their baseline as low as we can get it. Great. That makes a lot of sense. And that's actually really helpful um, that people can actually use that number. Um, Let me just mention one other thing, if you don't yeah. mind. No, the other thing I'm going to mention is a BNP in my institution costs $27. An ECG costs $150. An echo costs somewhere between $400 and $1,500. So for your return on investment, you get a lot of information. A $27 test that you will have back in a couple of hours that you yeah. don't have to schedule, the patient has to make another appointment to, 
I think is worth his weight in gold. Yeah, sounds like it. That's that's great to add that information to that too. Thank you. So let's talk about um, atrial fibrillation. This comes up a lot. Obviously, some patients with chronic AFib, and every once in a while, you know, we'll have somebody who looks like they're in AFib in pre-op, and they, as far as they know, have never been in it before. What does that mean? Do we need to cancel their surgery? It's new AFib? Do we not? How do we think about that? Um, so I don't know the answer to that. I think this is also one of those conditions that we're seeing more and more of as people live longer, as they're um, also surviving their coronary disease and their MIs and their heart failure, and we're keeping them alive, they develop atrial fib. You know, age and underlying heart conditions and hypertension are the biggest predictors of atrial fibrillation. So it's not surprising that you're going to perhaps discover someone on the morning of surgery who appears to have new onset atrial fibrillation. Now, I think you probably aren't that lucky that you're just right. catching that patient for the first time. In fact, a good uh, rule of thumb is I say, ask the patient if they're feeling any palpitations or rapid heartbeat. Because if, if you're looking at atrial fib on the, on the monitor and they don't think they're an atrial fib, you can bet your bottom dollar they wouldn't know it before they got to you, right? Yep. So it is possible that maybe new onset, but it's also possible you're having it, you know, present for the first time, especially because we often hold medications the morning of surgery. Patients are anxious and nervous and right. they may be a little bit dehydrated or, or whatever. Um, so it's not surprising that, you know, you either would see maybe a new one or you're seeing a, the exacerbation now. You're seeing the proxismal part of it. So, um, you know, if somebody, it's not whether you're in atrial fib or not that really makes a difference. First off, rate control is much more important than rhythm control. Um, there's actually very little benefit for most patients in putting them in rhythm control. Um, some patients will have a, a tachycardia, cardiomyopathy from rapid atrial fib rates, but those are really small and few, far between. Um, many, some patients will be able to come off their anticoagulant if they're proven that they're in you know, normal sinus rhythm for you know, years. But most patients after cardioversion are kept on anticoagulants or at least initially for a while. So you know, just I think the important thing is just realize that it's the rate that's important. And typically, you'd like to see the rate below 100 uh, because rapid rates in these patients, especially if they even have some diastolic dysfunction, maybe a significant difference because those patients, you know, you like to be in sinus rhythm if you have some diastolic dysfunction to help fill right. that left ventricle. Um, but, you know, it's more about the, the underlying condition of why this patient's in atrial fib, right? Because if it's just because they're old and they've had hypertension for a while, and then that risk of associated with atrial fib is probably much, much lower than if this patient has ischemia, they have heart failure, they have a myocarditis, they have a complication from their chemotherapy, which, you know, we're seeing more and more, especially with these, you know, checkpoint inhibitors, um, whether they have, you know, hyperthyroidism. Now, that said, in that differential I just gave you, it is very unlikely that patient has ischemia or that atrial fibrillation is a manifestation of their ischemia. That is just not a rhythm we usually see with ischemia. Now, if they do have underlying coronary disease, though, being an atrial fib in a rapid rate may exacerbate their ischemia. Um, it's also pretty unlikely in an elderly patient that the cause of their atrial fibrillation is hyperthyroidism. So, you know, generally now what you've discovered is a chronic condition that needs some chronic management, but doesn't necessarily need acute management on the day of surgery. I don't know. Traditionally, we have always canceled surgery when patients have had new onset atrial fib or newly discovered atrial fib on the day of surgery. Mm -hmm. um, but 
increasingly people are calling that into question of whether that's necessary. Um, and in fact, for the first time ever in, um, in uh, up to date, um, in a section written by electrophysiologist, they have actually specifically addressed this and said that, you know, generally it's, it's probably best to, to cancel that surgery, refer the patient for further follow-up. Um, but with a caveat, you may be able to proceed with surgery. So first off, if you do decide that you don't want to proceed with surgery, um, you, you do not need to admit that patient to the hospital. You do not need to send them to an emergency department, or you don't need to have them seen by a cardiologist immediately unless they have unstable condition, they're having heart failure symptoms, ischemia symptoms, or they have a very rapid rate. That can be done as an outpatient and the patient can follow up. Um, they, though, in this up-to-date article, they do highlight that if you are, the patient's anticipating a very low risk surgery, um, especially if it's been, if it's planned to have just sedation, that it's probably reasonable, if you don't have any of those conditions I just mentioned, to proceed with surgery and then refer the patient on to their primary care doctor or to a cardiologist for outpatient follow-up. Interesting. I think it's important to realize that, you know, many times these patients um, are, are, would go ahead and have their surgery anyway, even if you refer them to cardiology, because they will either start them on some medication for rate control, and sometimes patients don't even need that, because a lot of older patients who have atrial fibrillation have this sex sinus syndrome, right? They have Brady tachyarrhythmias, and they don't have very rapid atrial fibrates. But if they cardiovert a patient, the patient must be anticoagulated now for a full 30 days uh, before you can stop anticoagulation because the highest risk for VTE is in that 30 days post-cardioversion. So that's an important thing to consider when you are considering whether you're going to postpone or delay surgery. Because, for example, say you were going to do a biopsy of a mass in somebody's mouth that was going to determine if they have cancer or not. Right. Likely it's best to go ahead with that biopsy, right? Get a diagnosis, have the pathology being worked on, while that patient then simultaneously in parallel has their atrial fibrillation dealt with, and they can get their, their cancer treatment more on track in a more timely manner. Right. And you delaying, sending them to cardiology and having this, you know, big rigmarole and then coming back in a delayed fashion. Right. That makes a lot of sense. What about, you, you've mentioned valvular heart disease. One of the scariest things I think uh, that a patient could have going to the OR would be, you know, severe aortic stenosis. I, I would imagine you wouldn't want to take a patient with, you know, decompensated aortic stenosis to uh, maybe any surgery, certainly not outpatient surgery. But, you know, what, where do you make the cutoff? If somebody has, you know, mild or moderate aortic stenosis, would you do them in an outpatient center? How do you think about that? So I think, again, I think generally, probably if you have a patient with severe or critical aortic stenosis, there are poor candidates to be done in an ambulatory surgery center, even for the most minor procedure, because, you know, it doesn't take much of a drop in blood pressure or a drop in preload to perhaps have that patient, you know, start circling the drain. Right. Um, and again, you just have to think about all the resources you have. I, I think, you know, in the past, we, we, the cardiologist recommended valve replacement based purely on things like the valve area and the great gradient. But in the recent past, um, they, they really think we've been, I think, you know, operating on people too soon. And now it's really about symptoms. 
and they want to get that patient, you know, either right before they have symptoms or, you know, after they've already started to have some symptoms. And often they'll put these patients on, for example, you know, an exercise treadmill and try to see if they can, you know, discern any ischemia or any decrease in, you know, cardiac output with like an echo before they just simply say, oh, your valve area is less than one centimeter or your gradient is more than 50, you know, millimeters of mercury, you need your valve replaced. So therefore, you're going to see more and more patients showing up to have surgery who are walking around with, you know, severe aortic stenosis or what we in the past would have been like, oh my gosh, this patient needs their valve replaced. And they do say very specifically in the ACCHA guidelines that one should not do valve replacement purely for getting a patient through non-cardiac surgery. There should be an independent indication for replacing that patient's valve that's independent of non-cardiac surgery. Mm. Um, So, you know, I do think, though, that they highlight very specifically in this 2014 ACCHA guideline that, you know, patients who have valvular heart disease do highly benefit from everybody knowing what kind of disease they have, right? Is it stenosis? Is it regurgitant? Most patients tolerate, um, you know, chronic regurgitant disease quite well. Um, acute mitral regurgitant regurg can be a decompensated state, but, you know, chronic regurgitant disease is usually comp- tolerated quite well, whereas stenotic disease is, is, is more risky. And the, the more stenotic and the, the higher that gradient is, um, and associated conditions like associated coronary disease or ischemia is definitely going to put that patient at higher risk. They also say specifically, you know, that you should, um, you know, be prepared to realize these patients may benefit from an accelerated, you know, interventions or monitoring. And they specifically say things like a, you know, TEE or a PA catheter or an arterial line. So, you know, if you're out in a little surgery, you know, ambulatory surgery center and you're not equipped to do TEs or PA catheters, then, you know, maybe that's, again, not the best place to offer these patients care. They also specifically say that many of these patients, you know, will get into trouble in the post-operative period. And so many times they are, you know, they benefit from being in an intensive care unit after surgery. So again, you know, you don't have that, those resources in your ambulatory surgery center. So I do think in those situations, if you've got somebody with moderate or less stenotic disease, and they are well compensated, particularly if they have a good functional capacity for MET level or greater, I think most of those patients can be taken care of very well in your ambulatory surgery center. And definitely for things like, you know, cataract surgeries, you know, carpal tunnel, that that's fine. Um, I think once you have a patient who has severe critical disease, I think you've got to get on the phone with that cardiologist and you've got to really have a conversation. I think it's, it's, you know, possible, very likely that a cataract surgery would be fine for that patient in an ambulatory surgery center. But I think anything that's going to require maybe moderate to deep sedation or a general anesthetic is probably just not worth it. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So, you know, we, I, I've done an entire episode on AICDs, um, which, uh, I, you know, we, so we don't need to get into all the details, but I'm just curious for a patient with a, a, either a pacemaker or an AICD, would you um, do their surgery in an in outpatient center? How does that play in? Yes, I definitely think you can. And in fact, I think, again, as we see people, you know, living older and older, that you're going to see a lot more patients with these devices placed. I think, you know, with the pacemakers, if you don't have an electrocautery, it's a no-brainer, right? If there's not going to be an electrocautery, you don't have to worry about anything. I also right. think that if you have a patient with a pacemaker and the electrocautery is below the umbilicus, I think, again, the best guideline, I think, is still the American um, 
I mean, sorry, the, the Heart Rhythm Society guidelines. It's a bit dated now. It's published in 2009, I believe. Um, the ASA just actually updated their um, CIED guideline that I think came out in January of this past year. Um, and for the first time, I think it very much mirrors what that HRS guideline did. Where before their previous one, I didn't think was that, that accurate or that up to date. Um, so the ASA guideline is, 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 is pretty good. The reason I like the HRS one is just, I think the way it's structured, it's a little easier to say, ah, here's what I had to do pre-op. This is what I had to do intra-op. This is what, you know, I do with an ICD versus a, a pacemaker. But, um, I think that everybody agrees that if it's below the umbilicus, then, or there's no electrocautery, that a patient with a pacemaker, no problem. Um, I think that, um, if you, are going if you feel that you can use a magnet, then I think that that is relatively easy to use your ambulatory surgery center. But that requires your knowing whether the magnet is the appropriate thing to do. You know, magnets make pacemakers pace, and most of the time for pacemakers, magnets are the way to go, and magnets are fine. But if you've got a patient who's going to be prone, or you've got a patient that you know is going to have some surgery up in the chest wall where you can't place a magnet. Now that's, uh, you know, that's taken out. And so you would need to have that reprogrammed. Uh, increasingly, the, you know, the device uh, reps are out of that business. Uh, they don't like to have to do that. It's, it's hard to coordinate that. But if you have a good, you know, rapport with your reps and they'll come in and do that, that's fine. What I think that everybody says, the cardiologist, the, the ASA and the heart rhythm guideline, it says you can't rely on the reps to tell you what to do or to come up with the recipe of how to manage it. You need to basically tell them what to do. So most of that information can be gleaned from looking at the patient's chart and calling a cardiologist. Yep. Now, ICDs are a little bit different. So ICDs, again, the issue with the ICD is that, you know, electrocautery could interfere with that. But I always like to remind people, before you get too fixated on just this device, remember that most people who have ICDs don't have healthy hearts. They have some major problems. Um, so, you know, you need to make sure you understand the underlying cardiac condition that this patient has and decide whether that independently makes that patient a poor candidate to be in your ambulatory surgery center. Because the patient has an injection fracture of 10%. I, the least of your problem is the ICD management. Right, right. Um, but, you know, get back to that. If you think it's, you know, that it's just the underlying heart disease is okay, well managed, you know, you're good with that. Then I think remember that what, you know, magnets do with ICDs is they stop them from firing. Um, so if, you know, if, if you're going to have, you know, no electrocautery, you don't need to use anything. If you have electrocautery below the waist, you don't need to use anything. As long as it's not a subcutaneous ICD, those, even with electrocautery below the waist, they recommend you deactivate that or use a magnet or reprogram it. Um, or if the patient has an, L, an LVAD. Now, hopefully you're not taking care of too many people with LVADs and ICDs in your ambulatory surgery center. Yeah. Um, but that's a different, those patients always need to have a device, even if the cautery is on their big toe. Um, but then, you know, I think it, it's the most important thing to also remember is patients who have ICDs but are pacemaker dependent. You cannot use just a magnet if you're concerned about interference. Because a magnet can only do one thing. So it can't make a pacemaker pace and an ICD not fire if it's just one, you know, device. It will only turn off the ICD 
anti-tachytherapy treatment, it won't make your pacemaker pace. So all of those patients have to have their devices programmed. And then remember, you, you need to keep that patient in a monitored setting until you have it put back to normal settings. You can't send that patient home. You can't just go to phase two where they're sitting there drinking, you know, Kool-Aid. And you need to have a defibrillator, um, you know, ready to, to treat that, that patient. Um, so I think, again, it's, it's the devil's in the details. Many of these patients will be fine. Uh, taking care of an ambulatory surgery center, but you do need to know some things about their device and you need to know a bit about, you know, the management of that. Um, Great. So, you know, I, again, the ASA guidelines and that Heart Rhythm Society guideline are both good. Perfect. And we'll put references to all this stuff in the show notes. But um, let me ask you about hypertension because, you know, med students and residents ask this stuff all the time. You know, well, the patient's blood pressure, you know, is it's pretty high. It's, you know, 175 over 105, um, you know, and then they say, what do you want to do? Should we, do we need to delay the surgery? And then if you say no, they say, well, what, what number, right? What number, even this on oral boards, this comes up, what, you you wouldn't, you wouldn't delay or cancel. Well, what number would you delay or cancel? So what do we know about that? Well, so I, I'm going to give you, I guess, my answer, and then I'm going to give you what maybe the listeners should answer on their boards. Um, <laughs> so I first buy into this, don't ask, don't tell. So for a number of years, I've been saying that we should not be measuring patients' blood pressures preoperatively on the day of surgery unless we were concerned about it being too low. Because that blood pressure that you measure right before the patient's going back to the OR is by almost certainly nowhere near what their baseline or their normal blood pressures are. Um, And so, you know, I always say the only thing that's worse than no data is bad data. So now you've got bad data and you're making decisions. And I think that anybody who's listening to this who's been any time in an operating room know that most of the time we are struggling with hypotension. We're trying to bring blood pressures up. We're not often very worried about hypertension once the patient's under anesthesia, right? Right. So, you know, I was have been saying this in a lecture for many times about, you know, joke somewhat tongue-in-cheek about not measuring blood pressure, but um, I felt a bit redeemed because um, a couple of years ago, the uh, the um, UK uh, Society for you know um, Par- Management of Patients, I forget exactly, it's called NICE, but I forget what that exactly stands for, but they came out with a statement saying exactly that, that we should not be measuring patients' blood pressures, or at least we should not be delaying or canceling surgery based on immediate preoperative blood pressures. And they went a step further and said that we shouldn't even be measuring them in the preoperative clinic, that we should be taking the record of what the patient's blood pressures are from their primary care doctor. And I think they said, as long as those pressures were less than 160 over, I wanna say 100, but I don't remember now exactly the diastolic, but I know the systolic, I believe was 160, as long as it was below that in their primary care doctor's office, we should proceed with surgery regardless of what their blood pressures were, meaning higher. Of course, it was 80. You know, that was different. But right. you shouldn't make a decision of high blood pressure after that. They said that if you didn't have the primary care doctor's blood pressures, then in the preoperative clinic, if it was less than 180 over 100, it was okay. And they don't make anything recommendations for the day of surgery because they said those are just ridiculously inaccurate blood pressures to be even, mm-hmm. you know. So 
I think it's interesting because, you know, they also make an excellent argument, I believe, in this paper that we don't ask patients about their cholesterol levels. And we don't look at patients' cholesterol levels. And we don't cancel surgery or delay surgery so people can get their cholesterol levels under control. And if you look at it, the data suggests that you are a much greater risk of having, you know, um, decreased quality of life, decreased life expectancy because you have hypercholesterolemia than because you have hypertension. Hmm. Um, now, that was for long-term management. It's a little bit different for perioperative, right? Because we do know that if you have an aneurysm, if you've got bleeding, if you've got a surgeon who wants to put a tourniquet on and, you know, he wants you to drop that blood pressure low or he doesn't want the tourniquet to, have to be up at 260, it's a little different story. But, you know, we're going to take out those kinds of things, right? And we're just going to say your average patient is going to come in. Um, they make this argument that the patient is... If you delay surgery, it takes up to six to eight weeks of antihypertensive therapy before you've reduced that patient's risk. Just because you make their blood pressure 140 over 80 tomorrow or in 10 minutes because you've given them some IV medication doesn't mean you've changed anything at all. That patient has endothelial dysfunction. They have some left ventricular you know, issues. They are not a normal tensive patient. Okay, you're just kidding yourself if you're looking at those numbers and saying, I've got a different patient here. They're that same patient with the same risk. So think about, again, that time. I mentioned that about whether the patient's being anticoagulated, you know, after atrial fib. Are you willing to delay that surgery for six to eight weeks before that patient comes back? Because that's what it's going to take for you to change that patient's risk. And they also make this nice argument that, you know, that patient is going to be aging faster in every other way <laughs> during that time than the gain that you're going to get from bringing their blood pressure down 40 points. Hypertension is a chronic disease. It's treated over months, years, decades to lower risk. You do not lower somebody's risk in a few hours or a few days. As long as you can maintain an adequate blood pressure, we used to say things like 20% of baseline. That can be hard because, again, if your baseline is that immediate preoperative blood pressure that's way higher than it really is, that's not where you want to maintain it. So I think now the data is quite robust that you can use a map of 65 for everybody, no matter how high your blood pressure is. But if you're really concerned, you think somebody really, really has chronically higher long-term poor control, aim for 70. 70 is going to be fine. That way you don't have to know what their baseline is. And you don't have to adjust it um, other than a standard, which is a map of 65 or possibly 70. Great. How about glucose? That's another thing that we see a lot, right? Somebody with diabetes and they come in and their glucose is 250 in pre-op. Do we cancel that surgery, not do it in an outpatient center? How does that work? So we're back where, you know, don't ask, don't tell. I always say that just like with blood pressure is don't measure somebody's blood sugar the morning of surgery unless you think it's too low. Even the most well-controlled diabetics can have out-of-control or high blood sugars the morning of surgery. We have them stop many of their medications, right? Or we decrease the amount of medications. We tell them to now drink, you know, two gallons of Gatorade, which is, you know, chock full of sugar right before. So this is not... They, this is not a measure of what their average you know, control is. Knowing their A1C is much better. That said, though, I have to tell you, I find diabetes a bit of a frustrating condition um, because, you know, we know 
that from non-perioperative situations, patients with poorly controlled diabetes do worse than people with well-controlled diabetes. People with well-controlled diabetes do worse than people with no diabetes. And that's whether they have kidney disease or car, you know, cardiac disease or cerebral vascular disease, life expectancy, you know, infections. I mean, it's just, we know diabetes is not a, a good disease to have. But if you look at the data for perioperative you know, situations, we don't have good data. I think there's some data to suggest that if you're having cardiac surgery, if you're critically ill, if you're in an ICU, um, if you have a cerebral vascular event, that controlling your blood sugar and probably uh, you know below 180 is ideal, definitely below 200 in those settings may have some benefit. But in the outside of those settings, so for your average ambulatory surgery patient, I don't think we have any data to guide us on what you know an A1C should be or what a you know um, a, a, a sugar, blood sugar should be. I think if you have a patient in the morning of surgery who you believe is dehydrated from their hyperglycemia, who has hyperosmolar non-ketotic coma, who has DKA, then those are conditions, regardless of what your blood sugar is, that you should not be doing elective surgeries, or at least probably not in that ambulatory surgery center. Um, but I think outside of those absolute conditions, there's nothing else that you can you know, really hang your hat on. Um, I think we tend to, you know, again, over-treat just like we do, you know, um, blood pressures. You know, I'm, if I have a patient with a really high blood sugar, I may give them a little bit of insulin. But remember, you don't know when that patient's going to eat again. They may be nauseated and vomiting post-op. They may be. So I think it's important to separate type 1 from type 2. So type 2 patients, it's very unusual that they're going to get into problems from an elevated blood sugar and in a short period of time, even if their sugars are quite high, um, you know, especially if you can restart their routine medications within 24 hours. Now, type 1's a bit different. You know, type 1's can be very brittle. They can be very hard to manage. They vacillate quickly between hypo and hyper. They can go into DKA. And so I think it's important that you look and know when they took their insulin, because if that patient is not had insulin or you don't think they're going to be able to get insulin, within at least a 24-hour period, because most type 1 diabetics that go more than 24 hours without insulin are going to be at risk, risk of DKA. Remember, insulin doesn't just lower your blood sugar. It moves sugar into the cells. It moves it into your brain. Our brains are dependent on glucose to work. So, you know, type 1 diabetics are truly insulin dependent. We should not use that term generally. It's confusing. But, you know, type 2 diabetics may be on insulin to help them control their sugars, but they're not dependent on the insulin to live. Um, so I think it is a difference between your type 1 and type 2. SAMBA does have a guideline. I know they're in the process of revamping that guideline. I don't know when it's scheduled. I thought it was going to come out already, so hopefully soon. I think it will be out sometime in 2021. But they do have a guideline. I want to say it's from ooh, early, you know, maybe 2010, something like that. But, and they say exactly that, that I just said, DKA, hyperosmolar coma, you know, a patient who appears to be acutely ill, then they should not be having surgery. But otherwise, purely a, there's no level of either A1C or glucose that precludes ambulatory surgery.
Great. All right. So I love this. This is all really important stuff. How about potassium? That's another one, right? So somebody's got a slightly elevated potassium. What do we do about that? You're asking some of all of my favorite questions here. <laughs> um, so I also say the same thing. Don't ask, don't tell. So, you know, I think we perseverate on certain things that, you know, just don't have good data to back up that we should be worried about it. I like to tell a story once I was on call and I had three patients I was taking care of like overnight for long operations. And two of them were having arrhythmias and different things going on, unstable. And all three of them, I had potassium levels. One was low, one was normal, and one was high. So sort of like, you know, the, um, the, the, Three bears, Goldilocks and the three bears. Yeah, yeah. And the only patient who didn't have arrhythmias, um, I'm sorry, one of the patients, uh, let me say that again. I had low potassium, normal potassium, high potassium. One patient had arrhythmias. The other two patients were fine. The one patient had arrhythmias was the one with the normal potassium. Yeah. Now, there may have been other reasons for this patient to have arrhythmias, but they didn't have inherent heart disease. And they didn't, you know, it was they all had about the same kind of stress of surgery and the same. And I just always remember that was such a perfect example of like, you know, I think that if you look at the data, there's very little evidence outside of cardiac surgery. Now, if you look at cardiac surgery patients, there's some evidence to suggest that potassium levels do correlate with some arrhythmias and with some outcomes. But other than that, they do not. Um, we, there's been at least a couple of studies. One was done, and it was published in the Canadian Journal of Anesthesiology, but it was actually done from some researchers in the United States. And then there was an abstract that came out of Vanderbilt that looked at patients who were having um, a, a dialysis um, access, either PD catheters or fistulas or, you know, um, uh, access. And they looked at a large groups, both of them. I, one was, I think, several thousand patients, you know, a few thousand. The other, I think, was, you know, several hundred. And they had a whole range of potassiums, um, some of them as high as seven. And they showed in both of those studies that there was no correlation with potassium and poor outcomes. Mm. Um, I think that, you know, if you, again, you often get inaccurate potassium levels when you draw it the morning of surgery, because the typical way to do it is your nurse goes in, right? She starts an IV, especially if it's on a vascular access patient. She has one arm, right? Because the other one's going to, has the AV fissure, going to get the AV fissure. She has one arm and the patients are always difficult IV access, right? She tries five times. She puts a little, you know, 20 gauge IV in. The tourniquet's been up for four hours yeah. um, and, and she draws some blood out. And she sends, you know, she sends it to the blood gas lab. Whenever I get a normal potassium under that setting, I think, oh, my gosh, I hope my patient's not hypokalemic. Sure. Because almost certainly this is a, you know, somewhat hemolyzed or even, you know, epinephrine is potassium, right, out of cells. And so the patient may be anxious and nervous and now you've got even a higher potassium. So, again, they're not always very accurate. There's also many patients are dialyzed and then they come in after dialysis to have their surgeries you get a rebound hyperkalemia when you get dialyzed because when you dialyze a patient, you dialyze their blood, right? Well, we all remember that potassium is mainly an intracellular ion. So you dialyze the blood, they dialyze them down to usually a very normal or very slightly hypokalemic level because now they know all this potassium is going to come out of their 
intracellular equilibrate. They're going to have to wait two more days before they get dialysis again. So there's this rebound sort of hyperkalemia that often goes higher than where they were even before, right before dialysis, before it levels out again, usually 12 or more hours after dialysis. So again, often you're measuring the wrong thing. You're not measuring total body potassiums or what's normal here. So our rule of thumb, in fact, I finally convinced people a few years ago here at Northwestern to stop ordering potassiums if the patient's been dialyzed within 24 hours, we go ahead and do the procedure without measuring the potassiums because too often we would get these high levels and then we would send another blood sample and it would be okay. Or, right, you know, right. we, um, we would give some patients were treated with insulin and, and dextrose. And then we turned around and they were hypoglycemic and or hypokalemic. Totally. And I also like to last remind people that the ultimate treatment for hyperkalemia is dialysis. So if you can't dialyze a patient, you're not going to get their potassium down. And the longer a patient has a vas cath in, the higher that risk, right? The higher the risk they're having infection, the vas cath's going to clot or cause a clotting. They're going to not get a good AV fistula because it's it, downstream, they've decreased the blood flow by having this catheter chronically in their, you know, their proximal veins. So I think AV fistulas and vascular access PD catheters should be looked upon as very urgent, if not almost emergency surgeries. Yep. So you have to ask yourself very seriously, am I going to be doing this patient any favor to freak out about a potassium that's 6.2 when they always have a potassium 6.2? So I say, you know, if you're doing a MAC, you're almost certainly safer, right? Put the patient on the monitor, get a 12 DCG if, you, if it makes you feel better. If you don't see peak T waves, you don't see any arrhythmias, you know, do the case. I think you're safe doing it. Great. Love that. All right. Last thing I want to ask you about is OSA. Um, a lot of patients these days, obviously, um, we usually screen using the stop bang model. Um, is that what we should be doing? And, and depending on the score, would we ever not do a patient in an outpatient center? Well, now you've got to my least favorite topic. <laughs> um, I have to tell you, I wish OSA had never been um, defined or it never been, you know, recognized as a problem. I think it's been really such a difficult topic to deal with because it's an entire spectrum of disease, right? And I think that the only patients you probably really have to worry about is patients with severe OSA. You know, we know that many, many people have mild to moderate OSA and they do fine. So again, there is a SAMBA guideline. There's also a Society for uh, Anesthesiology and Sleep Medicine and they have a guideline. They have a, both a preoperative and an intraoperative guideline. Their guideline is not specific for ambulatory, which SAMBAs is specific for ambulatory. Um, but I think that if, you know, the SAMBA guideline says that if a patient has OSA and they have PAP, um, you can go ahead and do their procedure because they feel like that they're not any greater risk than they are every day with their OSA. They say if they have OSA or screen high risk for OSA and they do not have PAP, then if you're going to avoid opioids, then, and they don't have any major other comorbidities, they feel it's safe to go ahead and do that procedure. They say that if they have OSA or screen high risk and they do not have PAP and you're going to be giving them opioids post-op or significant opioids inter-op, 
or they have significant comorbidities, they have heart failure, they have, you know, other major problems, then that that is not a good patient to do in an ambulatory setting. We do know that patients who have general anesthesia appear to be at risk for up to 72 hours after general anesthesia. And we know that if you add opioids to that, that magnifies that risk. That said, I think it is a very small number of patients who have OSA, even severe OSA, who are going to get into trouble. But all you need is one patient, right? And, and that's, that's a tragedy. Um, so I do think the stop bang is, is one of the best methods. Unfortunately, that does require you to measure the neck. And so unless a patient measures their neck or that they know their shirt size, and only usually men know their shirt size, that can be a little bit challenging. So um, some people use other, um, we use stop BMI actually. Um, uh, Francis Chung, who was the one who, you know, developed the stop thing and stop, uh, which I, you know, give her great credit. And I do think it's the best screening tool. One of those stops also, you know, uh, did some studies with other variations of it. So stop BMI, we know that is, can be very effective because the BMI is greater than, than, um, 35 along with, you know, a positive stop that increases your risk. Um, and another, uh, if you have advantage of having a bicarb, anybody who has an elevated stop or, you know, any of the others with an elevated bicarb, that is also predictive of more severe OSA. So, you know, if you use stop bang, if you use three or more positives, that does indicate an increased risk for OSA. But most of those patients or many of them are going to have mild to moderate disease and they're probably not going to be at risk at all. So a better cutoff if you're going to use stop bang is five, because if you have used five or more, you're much more likely to be identifying a group of patients who have severe OSA, mm-hmm. not a milder condition. And so then those situations, you could apply that sample guideline um, and, uh, you know, utilize that. Um, or some, you know, people uh, just, you know, have an extended post-op, you know, sort of criteria. And if the patient desaturates or they need some oxygen, but I do, you know, you know, urge you to, to again, listeners to know that it may be up to 72 hours. So nobody's going to keep them in the pack you for right. Right. 72 uh, hours. Yes. Amazing. All right. This is so great. And I love all of this. I love that it challenges some of our, our just common, you know, um, notions and, and practices. And I think people should think hard about this. Obviously, as we always say, we're not telling you how to practice. You should discuss with your local um, practitioners and you should think about your local guidelines. But if it's really different than what um, Dr. Schweitzer has been talking about here, you know, bring those conversations up at your at your local um, center and think about um, whether your practices are in line with with what the evidence suggests. Um, Bobby, thank you so much. This has been great and uh, I think incredibly useful for folks. Um, I want to turn to the portion of our show where we talk about our random recommendations. Do you have anything you'd recommend to the audience that they check out while they're stuck at home? Well, you know, I've never been one to uh, watch a lot of television, though I have been uh, watching a bit and I finally watched Homeland, which I really enjoyed. Um, but um, I've been reading a lot more, reading non-medical stuff because I have, you know, I raised three children. They're all now in their 20s. And uh, but I think the combination of working and, you know, writing books and and um, and doing academic work, I, I had, you know, uh, not been able to read as much. So that has been one of the advantages of, of COVID. And right now I'm reading the autobi- autobiography of Malcolm X. Mm. It's an old book. 
It was published, I believe, back in like maybe the late 90s, maybe early 2000. Um, it was uh, updated, and I'm reading the updated version. In fact, I think the, the, the original was even earlier than that because Alex Haley was actually the, the author who wrote it. And I'm reading the updated version, which was, um, uh, and his, he, I did this because of, with a lot of the um, issues that had gone on, um, you know, through the spring and with the, the, the shootings and the deaths of a lot of, you know, uh, a black people, um, people of color. And um, I wanted to, I think, you know, be um, uh, more enlightened about this, the civil rights movement and, you know, where things had, you know, because I'm young enough or old enough, I'm sorry, that I remember, you know, things perhaps, you know, differently. And I think a lot of the hope, I mean, I wasn't alive in this 60s or, you know, I wasn't, but, but a lot of hope that, you know, we wouldn't have found ourselves in the position we are still in here in 2020. Um, so I, I really highly recommend it. It's an excellent book. And um, I think he was, you know, one of the uh, great champions of, of civil rights. And often, you know, I think he's mis, um, misconstrued or misunderstood to some regards because mm. of his uh, uh, adoption of his Islam. Yeah. And, um, but it's an excellent autobiography. I like uh, historical fiction, fiction, and I mean, historical fiction, history and autobiographies in general. So I'm ten, I tend to sort of, you know, gravitate to those kinds of, of reads, but it's excellent. Awesome. Do you know who the author of the updated version is? Oh, I don't, you know, um, We'll be able but to I find it. If you just, if you, yeah, I think if you go to, even, even if you probably, um, uh, because I think they basically use the same, you know, version that Alex Haley had written, but they just, you know, updated it with a, a whole beginning section and okay. then a section at the end also. Okay, great. So I think if you well, just Google Malcolm X by Alex Haley, um, in fact, the probably original one's not even in print anymore. You'll probably just get that updated version. Great. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And then, in fact, uh, I remember. I remember now. Spike Lee actually wrote, I believe, a foreword in it. Oh, so nice. Look for that version. Yes. Great. Fantastic. All right. And th- and then I will recommend a recipe for Oreo cheesecake. I've never made a cheesecake of any kind before, let alone an Oreo cheesecake. But yesterday, my daughters and I made an Oreo cheesecake from a website called preppykitchen.com. If you just Google Oreo cheesecake preppy kitchen, you'll get it. And it was really, really good. And even though it looks complicated, it actually was pretty easy to make, including even the like ganache topping. And it was really delicious. So I highly recommend that. Check it out. All right, Dr. Schweitzer. If you just have a moment, I'd like to throw down a challenge here. I Uh actually... I actually won a prize once in a newspaper recipe contest for my cheesecake. Wow. This was many years ago. Um, it actually is a adaptation of a cheesecake that I, it's called Victor's Cheesecake because I worked with a um, nurse named Victor when I was a medicine physician and I was moonlighting in an emergency department on the weekends because I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. And this is before I decided to go into anesthesia. So I, Victor would, we'd always bring food for each other at nighttime and Victor would frequently bring in his cheesecake and it's an excellent recipe. I adapted it a little bit. I entered it into this, this, um, recipe contest. I won first prize for desserts wow. uh, in Boston, Massachusetts, no less. 
Um, and it is excellent. So if you don't mind, I'll send you my cheesecake recipe if you send me your cheesecake recipe. Yeah, I, I, did. I absolutely will. I'd love to try yours, and, um, and we'll see. I would love to try a new one. As I said, I've only made one cheesecake in my life, so I'm very much open to making a new one. I love cheesecake. Well, we will exchange them. Thank you so Thank- much for coming on the show. This has been fantastic. Thank you. It's been my great pleasure. All right. As I said, that was almost an hour and a half, but I would say an hour and a half of pure gold. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Let us know what you think. Go to the website, com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. Also, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Jay Walpaw, and we're at Akrak Podcast, and you can join the Facebook group if you would like. If you're a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. And if you're interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also go and make a donation anytime on PayPal by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking on Venmo for Jay Wolpaw. All right. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and those who are already patrons. We really appreciate it. Big thanks to our tech lead, Dr. Brian Park, to our social media manager, April Liu, and to our former social media manager, Dr. Kimia Cash-Cooley. Our original ACRAG music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAG Podcast and Dr. Bobby Schweitzer, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks so much for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. 